This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. New virus fears sparking in China after 275 new subvariants emerged within a week. Residents posting their virus test results online pointing to a trend in reinfections. Now, concerns over possible mutations are front and center. Are they enough to drive a second wave? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Over 270 COVID-19 sub-variants emerging in China within seven days. The country's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention made the announcement last Saturday. Authorities discovered the subvariants from April 14th to 20th. That's as Chinese media reports say residents are posting their positive virus test results online, revealing that many are getting reinfected. In a social media post, an internet user from southwestern Chongqing shared that her husband and two children caught the virus once again, though so far their symptoms have been mild. In another post, an internet user from Nanjing said her entire family was reinfected. That's about three months after they fell sick the first time. Someone from Guangdong also posted their test results. Like many others, the person reported mild symptoms. A prominent Chinese virologist gave his take on what's going on. Dr. Zhang Wenhong is the director of the Department of Infectious Disease at a Shanghai hospital. He explained that if the virus were to mutate, reinfections would start appearing about half a year later, and usually on a limited scale. But if that mutation changed enough to break through the human immune system, then the trend of reinfections could be enough to form a second wave. Thousands of people took to the streets in New York City over the weekend for a unique parade. The event marked what's known as the largest peaceful petition ever in communist China 24 years ago, when over 10,000 Falun Gong practitioners visited Beijing to appeal for the right to peacefully practice their beliefs. Here are the details. Fairy floats, marching bands, and dragon dances, 4,000 Falun Gong practitioners gathered in Flushing on Sunday for a massive parade. I'm so happy to see this parade. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I feel lucky today, you know, to run into this parade. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a spiritual practice combining meditation and gentle exercise, and a focus on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. After its public introduction in 1992, it attracted tens of millions of practitioners in China within several years. But the communist regime began to see its emphasis on spirituality and free thought as a threat to its own power. The regime began assaulting and arresting Falun Gong practitioners in certain regions. On April 25, 1999, about 10,000 Falun Gong practitioners arrived in Zhongnanhai, the CCP's central headquarters in Beijing. In a peaceful manner, they appealed to China's authorities to allow them the freedom to practice and to stop the harassment. There was a policeman standing next to me, so I went over and told him about our appeal. He exclaimed, in all these years, I have never seen such peaceful petitioners as your group. The Chinese Communist Party framed the petition as a siege of its headquarters and used it to justify the persecution campaign that followed soon after. 
For over two decades, countless Falun Gong practitioners have been imprisoned, tortured, and even murdered for their organs. But the practice of peaceful petitioning spread throughout China and the world, with practitioners raising awareness of the brutal human rights abuses still going on today. And it's a day of courage, it's a day of unity, it's a day of inspiration that we're still here, and that with the courage, forbearance, and truthfulness, that everybody can stand together, and, and the worst has happened, and the best is yet to come. Onlookers said they were deeply impressed by this spirit. Those efforts won't go in vain. This group of heroic men and women, the students of the noble and moral teacher Li Hangzhi, the founder of Falun Gong, and them I see the hope of humanity. The event ended with a rally where human rights groups called for an end to the persecution in China. At the site, 20 Chinese announced their withdrawal from the Communist Party and its two affiliated groups. To date, over 400 million people have made similar statements at the Global Service Center for quitting the CCP. NTD News, New York. Aside from the U.S., practitioners from other countries also honored the historical appeal. Despite the ongoing persecution inside China, Falun Gong is practiced in around 70 countries worldwide, and its teachings have been translated into more than 40 languages. A priority bill direct from the office of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The measure targets foreign ownership of U.S. land, but it's facing pushback from certain Chinese Americans. If passed, here's what HB 1355 and its companion SB 264 would change. The bills would limit individuals and companies from seven countries of concern from buying up property on American soil. Nations on the blacklist include superpowers China and Russia, plus North Korea, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela and Syria. Specifically, the rule would block them from owning any agricultural land in Florida, as well as bar purchases within 20 miles of a military facility or critical infrastructure. It would also single out foreigners from China, banning them from buying homes in the state. As for current owners, they'd need to register with the state. We do not need to have CCP influence um, in Florida's economy. DeSantis noted that the rule is directed at non-U.S. citizens and permanent residents who live in those countries, saying it's not meant to impact Floridians or other U.S. residents. But on Wednesday, calls of discrimination echoed through a House committee room, where around 100 Chinese Americans and permanent residents gathered. Some also brought up other concerns, like how the measures may stunt investment and the foreign buyer market for real estate. And another issue, the bills would block China-based parents of Chinese students from buying property for their child to live in while studying. SB 264 sponsor Congressman Catherine Waldron noted the bill would likely get amended to address that concern. The measure responds to intel that a Chinese company bought up farmland next to a North Dakota Air Force base last year, as well as warning from security experts that Beijing could use that property for espionage. We don't want to have holdings uh, by hostile nations. And so if you look at the Chinese Communist Party, they've been very active throughout the Western Hemisphere in gobbling up land. HB 1355 received unanimous bipartisan support from the House and the Senate as of last week. 
Beijing stamping out fires to start up the week. China's foreign ministry said Monday that it respects the sovereignty of ex-Soviet states. That's after Beijing's envoy to Paris sparked a diplomatic storm by questioning their sovereignty. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the details. The envoy from the Chinese regime questioned the sovereignty of Ukraine and other former Soviet Union countries in a televised interview on Friday last week. The Chinese ambassador in Paris says ex-USSR countries don't have actual status in international law because there's no international agreement to materialize their sovereign status. Lithuanian Foreign Minister Gabrielis Landsbergis tweeted out his concern on Saturday, citing the comments as an example of why the Baltic states don't trust China to broker peace in Ukraine. Estonian Foreign Minister Margus Sakna called the comments false and a misinterpretation of history. His Latvian counterpart Edgars Rinkovic said the statements were completely unacceptable. European Union Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell shared that view, calling the remarks unacceptable on Sunday. A senior Ukrainian presidential aide called the statements absurd. The foreign ministers are summoning China's ambassadors to explain the envoy's comments. The European Union and NATO members, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, regained their independence in 1991 during the fall of the Soviet Union. That was after nearly five decades of Moscow's rule. Russian President Vladimir Putin does not recognize the sovereignty of Ukraine. The Kremlin has made it clear that it perceives the independence of the Baltic states and their active role in NATO and the EU as threats to Russia's security. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Now, 80 lawmakers from the European Parliament have sent a letter to France. They're asking the nation to declare China's ambassador persona non grata over his unacceptable behavior. The Chinese embassy in France said its envoy's comments were not a statement of policy, but an expression of personal views. It added that China was among the first countries to establish diplomatic relations with ex-Soviet states. Australia is laying out its defense plans, and the proposals could mean the biggest shakeup in decades. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said his government's plan would make the nation more self-reliant. He noted that Australia must build and strengthen security, quote, by seeking to shape the future rather than waiting for the future to shape us. Canberra is now looking to strike farther and faster while working with allies to reduce tensions. To do it, increased spending and increased pressure on the workforce are inbound. The plan shows spending will focus on weapons like amphibious landing vehicles, anti-ship missiles and mobile long-range rocket systems. The guidelines come in response to a wide-ranging defense review. It looked at how military systems and logistics would fare in a sudden conflict, possibly with China. Of all its conclusions, the most serious is the assumption in the review that Australia could come under attack from Chinese missiles and ships without warning. The review also examined how Australia could better integrate with its AUKUS partners, the United States and Britain, as well as other allies. The AUKUS countries last month announced Australia would spend $246 billion on nuclear-powered submarines and will jointly develop hypersonic weapons. That's to catch up to China. Where is Gao Zhisheng? That's a question U.S. lawmakers are demanding from China. Last Thursday, friends and family members of Chinese human rights lawyer Gao Zhisheng testified before Congress, aiming to get justice for their loved one. They haven't heard from him in six years after he vanished in China. Gao had repeatedly spoken out against the Chinese regime's human rights abuse. He's feared to have been disappeared by authorities because of it. NTD's Sam Wong has more. 
April 23rd of 2023 marked Gao Zhisheng's 59th birthday. And on that day, his wife Geng He told NTD that she's hoping to learn her husband's whereabouts. Today is the 2067th day that I've lost all contact with my husband. I feel very sad in my heart. Gong fled to the U.S. with her two children back in 2009 and has since been outspoken about her husband's detainment. U.S. Congressman Chris Smith also reflected on Gao's work from a letter the lawyer wrote 15 years ago. But it was a letter to Congress, and he talked about how what was happening to Falun Gong uh, was unspeakable, and he went through the tortures and, and described what they were doing to individuals. It's only gotten worse since then. And for that, they threw the book at him even more. Gao Zhisheng was once recognized by China as one of the country's 10 best lawyers. He's now known as China's conscience. As a devout Christian, Gao has stood firm, saying it was God who gave him strength through hard time. Being one of the nation's first pro bono attorney, he provided legal assistance to dispossessed landowners and victims of medical malpractice. Over the course of his career, the attorney has taken on a number of high-profile human rights cases. Those he represented include Falun Gong practitioners, Christians, and workers seeking labor rights. He also wrote open letters to high-ranking Chinese officials, urging them to stop the brutal persecution of Falun Gong. But Gao has faced multiple reprisals for defending these people. Following the letter, he was first arrested in 2006 after repeated harassment by authorities. He later said prison guards used electrical batons on his face during detainment. His teeth were also severely damaged due to constant beatings in jail. Gao's sister also suffered under the Chinese regime. She committed suicide in 2020 after enduring years of intimidation and harassment from authorities. After being released in 2014, Gao was kept under house arrest until his disappearance three years later. His whereabouts remain unknown. Despite pressure from Chinese authorities, he and his family refused to back down. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wang, NTD News. Beijing is tightening its grip on its people while it rolls out the red carpet for visiting foreign officials. Yuan Shen, a Chinese human rights lawyer, was detained earlier this month on his way to a meeting with the European Union ambassador to China. His wife was with him at the time and was also detained. The EU has demanded that Beijing release the couple immediately and unconditionally. France and Germany also made a joint call for their release. Yu was disbarred as a lawyer in 2018. The decision came after he had represented multiple Falun Gong practitioners and some fellow lawyers who were arrested in 2015. In July of that year, Beijing rounded up and interrogated more than 300 rights lawyers and activists nationwide. He was also jailed twice for five years total. He received the Martin Annals Award in February 2021, referred to by some as the Nobel Prize for Human Rights Defenders. With debts running deep, a province in China is openly pleading for Beijing's help. The landlocked Guizhou province in southwest China went public last month with its debt relief woes. Here are more details. In an article published by Province Leadership, officials said it's impossible to solve the debt problem effectively on its own. The report was soon deleted. Just how big is its bill? Guizhou left a total of $180 billion unpaid in 2022, more than 60 percent of its GDP that year. That debt averages out to nearly $5,000 for each resident. Much of the overborrowing grew out of so-called government financing vehicles. These platforms allow officials to bypass lending restrictions and fund local infrastructure projects done through opaque channels. 
That's in efforts to impress Beijing after its call for growth in recent decades. Adding to the cash drain, three years of pandemic control and the country's real estate turmoil. An expert weighs in on the issue. Real estate sales, you know, almost, you know, uh, were cut in half, you know, or more. And the Chinese local government, who used to re rely on land sales and you know, real estate development to get their revenue to support their you know, municipal budget or provincial budget, are not able to do that, to sustain that. Despite the piling deficits, Beijing has signaled it won't come to the rescue. Earlier this year, the Ministry of Finance warned local authorities that they should handle so-called local issues themselves, saying, if this is your child, you should hold it yourself. It's truly a national problem. If the central government needs to help Guizhou province, they're going to have to help you know, all other provinces, and uh, I don't think they have the money to do so. Last year, the northern city of Hagong became the first Chinese city to go through financial restructuring due to severe debt problems. Beijing asked it to stop hiring new employees and sell its assets. In June of the same year, wealthy eastern provinces like Guangdong, Zhejiang, and Jiangsu slashed civil servant wages, the amount by up to 30 percent. Coming up, the World Health Organization, to quit or not to quit. The co-founder of the Sovereignty Coalition, Reggie Littlejohn, says leaving is the answer. We spoke to her about why she believes the WHO's new amendments would harm freedom and put medical choices at stake in the U.S. and how communist China is involved. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Does the U.S. need to exit the World Health Organization? Reggie Littlejohn, co-founder of the Sovereignty Coalition, says yes. She explains how the WHO's new amendments could roll out China's social credit system in the U.S. and around the world, and how individual freedom and medical choices are at stake. Reggie Littlejohn, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on our show. It's always an honor to be here. I'm very happy to be here. Well, Reggie, you're very busy, and you actually just added a new title to the list. You're now the co-founder of the Sovereignty Coalition. So kind of tell us what's this coalition and what are what is the goal here? So I, with Frank Gaffney, I've, I co-founded the Sovereignty Coalition, and it's just it's a coalition of some really major um, leaders. So, for example, uh, Michelle Bachman, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Naomi Wolf, among others, um, have all come together to want to defend our national sovereignty and our personal medical freedom from threats posed by the World Health Organization and the way that the Biden administration is actually supporting the World Health Organization in passing uh, two different agreements, two different instruments that would seriously damage our national sovereignty and our personal medical freedom. And Reggie, you mentioned the term our national sovereignty, right? And it seems, you know, with the new amendments that would be in place with the WHO, what would happen to America? What's at stake here? Our entire uh, way of life, our entire democracy are at stake, Tiffany. So if the amendments are passed and if the pandemic treaty is passed in the form that, that they are currently in, okay, the, the last public publication of these, 
uh, a number of things would happen. The World Health Organization would move from being an advisory body to being a, a, a um, compulsory body. The, the, the words non-binding is suggested that those be deleted, and so there would be a regulatory body and an enforcement body. So think think of how much how much they botched the COVID-19 crisis. Okay, so they 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 followed China's lies that there was no human to human transmission. Um, that uh, that we should not stop flights from China because that's somehow racist, et cetera. I mean, they just, they just parroted the China lies and so many people got sick and so many people died because of the mismanagement of the World Health Organization. And so as their reward, they want to expand their powers. Another thing that they want to do in, in the pandemic treaty, they, they, they want to be able to surveil everything. So there's something called One Health, which means that they want to be able to come to the United States. They would be able to choose whether there's some kind of a health risk, not us, without our permission. Or, and this is this goes for any country in the world. They could go into that country because they made an assessment that there is not just a pandemic, but a potential pandemic. Um, so that is a destruction of national sovereignty. And they also have this thing called One Health, which means that they, they can move in not just on the basis of a human pandemic or a germ, but also animals, plants, or the environment. So it basically covers every facet of life on Earth, and they would have the power to declare a, a potential health risk, and then they would have the power to tell us how to handle it. So they would have the power to say, we, we demand that everybody involved here be quarantined, um, we demand that everybody be vaccinated, you know, forced vaccinations. So that is where our personal medical freedom, our personal sovereignty would be destroyed. So we're trying to protect our national sovereignty and our personal sovereignty. And Reggie, on that note, so just to be clear, right, so in the past pandemic, the one that we all just lived through, the WHO was an advisory board, right? They were giving us suggestions or guidelines, but they couldn't unilaterally tell us what to do. So if these amendments pass, it sounds like the WHO has all the power. What would happen then if people didn't listen or if a country didn't listen? So this is what would happen. As I mentioned, they want to establish surveillance so that they can detect, the excuse is that they can then detect if there's a health issue of humans, plants, animals, or environment. So this surveillance system um, is very similar to a um, vaccine passport or a, a digital ID, which is being pushed out by not only WHA, but also the, the UN um, and also the World Economic Forum. So they would be surveilling us and they also want to censor us. There's a section in the treaty about censorship of misinformation and disinformation, which is basically anything that counters what the WHO is saying. So they will be able to identify people uh, who disagree with them. And then this is not part of the WHO agreements, but it's something that's going on a separate track, parallel track, is central bank digital currencies. Right, so the Biden administration is in the process of development of these, possibly rolling them out, rolling out a precursor in, in July called FedNow. A number of countries around the world have already already have central bank digital currencies. What this would do is it would give, um, in our case, the Federal Reserve the the power to see every single transaction that we make, and these central bank digital per currencies are potentially programmable 
meaning that they could have the power to approve or disapprove of a purchase or even turn your money off entirely. And if people think that this can't happen, it already did happen in Canada when the truckers had their, um, their, their trucker strike having to do with vaccine mandates and the Canadian government working with the banks shut them off from their credit cards and their bank accounts. Not only the truckers, but also anyone who had donated to them. So that's the enforcement mechanism. If they find through surveillance that you are resisting them, they can just shut off your, your access to your money. And Reggie, expanding on those two points, it sounds a lot like China's social credit system, right, where everything is surveyed. And based on your comments on social media, you might not get on a bus or get a better plane ticket or get into a better school. So how likely is that to end up happening here in America? So, Tiffany, that's why I got involved with this. You know that my background is human rights in China. And when I saw this vaccine passport um, being rolled out, uh, I saw I saw the social China's social credit system written right on it. And that's why I diverted a lot of my energy to countering this. And I believe that that is the end game. I mean, you know that uh, that the that the China is has way outsized power in the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum. And uh, so, of course, they want to impose the China model, which is the, the social credit system, on the entire world. And Xi Jinping himself has said that he wants to have a major hand in constructing some kind of a, a global governance. And I believe that they're doing that through the World Health Organization and, and this parallel track of China's social credit system through the surveillance um, and the social listening and the central bank digital currency trying to trap the entire world in like a, a, a Chinese style gulag. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.